we get the feelings that the author is trying to convey with the poem, but we also kind of get a, a little bit of a glimpse about his feelings about feelings, the meta feelings surrounding the poem. Think about a window. It is a clear pane of glass. Yeah, he is telling you something that's past the pane of glass, but there are these inception-like layers where he's saying, yeah, look past the pane of glass at this thing that I'm telling you. But also, if you notice, look at the pane of glass, look at the language, mm -hmm. look at the window. It's wonderfully tinted. There's this crack down the window that I think is kind of beautiful. There's a bee wing that's stuck to the window, you know, or there's like this yellow pollen that's collected on the bottom of the window. So poetry, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's this kind of meta pleasure of poetry where you get the content of the poem, but you also get the form of the poem. Hello, everyone. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Brady about the poetry of Seamus Heaney. At the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that will help you pay more attention to sound in your poetry. Today's quote to start the recording with is about sound. It's one of my favorite quotes to share with poetry students because I think it really helps realign our expectations about what to look for in a poem and teaches us exactly how to experience and enjoy poetry. The quote comes from one of my favorite books called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, at the beginning of which James Aggie, the author, introduces his book and kind of coaches us a little bit in how we should read it and how we should approach it and how we should read all great art. The little exercise that he describes in this quote is, of course, metaphorical. Do not try this at home. Serious bodily damage will ensue, but I think you'll get the point. He, so he kind of proposes this thought experiment and says this, Get a radio or a phonograph capable of the most extreme loudness possible, and sit down to listen to a performance of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony or of Schubert's C Major Symphony. But I don't mean just sit down and listen. I mean this. Turn it on as loud as you can get it. Then get down on the floor and jam your ear as close into the loudspeaker as you can get it and stay there, breathing as lightly as possible and not moving, and neither eating, nor smoking, nor drinking. Concentrate everything you can into your hearing and into your body. You won't hear it nicely. If it hurts you, be glad of it. As near as you will ever get, you are inside the music. Not only inside it, you are it. Your body is no longer your shape and substance. It is the shape and substance of the music. Poetry acts on us and on our bodies in the exact same way that music does. So when you're reading poems, pay much less attention to what they quote-unquote mean, and much more attention to the way that they move, the way that they sound, the way that they affect your body. Read them out loud. Listen to other people or recordings of people reading these poems out loud. Sound waves will be moving through the air, literally hitting your body and making it vibrate slightly. This is what poetry is meant to do. It's one of those art forms in which sound becomes crucial. And for you to fully experience the pleasures that a poem has to offer you, you have to, as James Aggie says, not just listen to the poem, but become the poem. Turn your body into the poem's instrument, right? Let the poem physically move you. And I think that you'll instantly see that poems are much more pleasurable and much easier to enjoy than perhaps you ever realized. And for more concrete examples of this, let's go into that chat between me and Brady.
Hi, Brady. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah, maybe I'll just ask you first then to begin with what your favorite poem, if you had to pick a favorite poem in the book or maybe in the second half, what would it be? So I was really glad that we were talking about the second half because my favorite poem by far in the in the book comes from from the curate Troy. And basically it's just talking about hope and how usually in history things don't really go as people hope for them, but every now and then this this line is just great. It says that justice can rise up and hope in history rhymes. Mm. And that's just awesome to me that that just uses that choice of wording because he's a poet and so it's just kind of ironic that he would he would make the connection that hope and history rhyme and they don't but it's just awesome for me what page is this on we should probably read it yes page 100 this is from a larger work maybe i'll just go ahead and read it and you already kind of mentioned this last line that you love but mm-hmm. i'd love to hear more about what you have to say about that line and what you think it means when he says hope and history rhyme and also any other moments in the poem that you like. Okay. Troy, of course, people will know what Troy is and the story of Troy. I think I'll just go ahead and read it. Human beings suffer. They torture one another. They get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully write a wrong inflicted and endured. History says don't hope on this side of the grave. But then once in a lifetime, the longed for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a farther shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Call miracles self-healing, the utter self-revealing double take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain and lightning and storm and a God speaks from the sky, That means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its term. It means once in a lifetime that justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. What struck you so much about this refrain? The refrain is just a repeated set of lines and he Uh uses this twice. What is, I don't, I'm not totally in love with um, quote unquote (laughs) interpreting or analyzing, you know, the the meaning of a poem, but he is making a kind of profound, I guess you could say philosophical statement. What Mm -hmm. is his argument here? So I I was picturing it as as kind of like war when, when there's these battles and these deep intense things going on to different groups of people. One of them is obviously experiencing the worst that that society and the world has to offer where they're being destroyed, they're being everything's being taken from them. But another one that's also struggling is seeing their, their hopes and their, the glory that they, that they aspire to coming to reality. And so it's interesting to me that he would choose such a, a, a thing as like hopes compared to history because history, it's often said history is written by the victors. And so hope would indicate that, that history, history would indicate that hope is something that we should aspire to, that we should hope for things in this life. But, only every now and then, because there's always a loser to every battle, and there's always a winner to every battle. And the winner obviously gets to have their hopes, the loser does not. Yeah, in history, you know, for as many victors there have been in history, there are an equal amount of, quote-unquote, you know, uh, losers or people who have been defeated or slaughtered or displaced. It's horrible to look through history, this, the span of human history, and realize how much suffering mm-hmm. human beings have had to endure. Yeah, but every once in a while, good things happen. 
Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, hope is proven to be justified. Mm-hmm. And you, there's always conflicts that are like, why are we doing this? Why are we fighting? It's not really justifiable, but then there's there's those certain conflicts that are justifiable that help us to recognize that some things are worth hoping and fighting for. Here's a question that you've inspired me to ask. I, I wasn't planning on it, and I don't have particular... I mean, there's no correct answer, you know, so don't get nervous. Um, <laughs> it's just something I wonder about from time to time. I just love your opinion about this. Think about the literature that you've read, you know, throughout your life. Think about your favorite books. Do you think that it's true that all great literature, all great stories, all great novels, all great poems must in some way be life-affirming or hopeful? This is a poem about hope, you know, and so even if you think about the most, or movie, you know, know, any work of art, I guess we could expand this to any work of art, any great painting, any great film, you know, many of these books and novels and poems and stories do tackle subjects that are and he, re- he refers to Troy, so he's talking about Homer and the Iliad and the Trojan War, which is, you know, incredibly bloody event. So even poems that are, or stories that are about incredibly painful or horrendous events, do you think that all art in some way has to include some element of affirmation or hope or positivity? That there, you can't actually make a great work of art that's utterly bleak mm-hmm. and hopeless. It sounds like a leading question, like, don't you think that? You know, I'm leading the witness, but I don't know. What's your opinion about this? I think there's definitely works of art that can end in tragedy. Like, obviously, there's there's lots of tragedies in history, but, but I don't think that tragedy and bleakness and hopelessness, I don't think they mean anything unless they're contrasted with something good. And so it's, it, poetry specifically, they, it takes a lens and it just examines one little tiny aspect of life and kind of shows the beauty in that little aspect, but we need the the background, the contrast. So I don't think you can have a book that ends with um, hope and affirmation and good things and doesn't include some element of, of despair and tragedy. And then vice versa, if you want your, your work to end with examining the, the tragedy and sad things in life, you can't not include good and hope and wonderful things too, because otherwise it's just, it's just looking like at a white wall. There's, there's no difference. There's no, nothing that stands out. This is great. What a great answer. Contrast, right? So all writers, I think of all genres need to keep this in mind, the principle of contrast. And even if you are a cynic, a total cynic, or a nihilist, a complete and outright nihilist, and believe that nothing matters and nothing has meaning, you won't be able to make great art because it has no contrast. It has no opposite spice. Mm-hmm. You know, It has nothing in it that offers a different perspective, something that's hopeful. So even the most bleak works of art must have some light that shines. It might be a small light. It might be kind of like flickering and dying, but it has to be there. And also, you're exactly right to say that the opposite is true. Think of like the brightest, happiest, most cheerfulest story or book or plot that you've ever read. No, there always has to be a villain or an antagonist, or a problem, or an obstacle. There there just has to be. Mm -hmm. And readers don't buy endings that are too happy, or happy endings that come too easily, Mm -hmm. because it's just not true to life, which is full of contrast, as you say. Especially interesting to me, because we we read these stories in hopes of escaping life, in a sense. That's that's why I've read them in the past. But the more and more I read them, the more I, I realize I'm looking to 
analyze my own life to try and solve my problems by looking at other problems that have been solved. And even if they're not real, it's nice to see people overcome these obstacles. I think that's so true and so wise. I'm learning this slowly for myself, watching my kids grow up. My kids are eight and six, and I'm I'm reading them stories. My wife and I are reading them books. You know, we try. They, they sometimes rebel. And I don't want to make reading kind of a torture for them. So it's sometimes a hard, a hard line to walk. But I can see in my children's faces exactly what you're describing. They don't necessarily... I mean, there is an element of escapism that they love, but they also... For example, we've gone through this Roald Dahl kick recently. I know we've strayed from Seamus Heaney. We'll get back to him, people listening, I promise. But this is relevant because <laughs> this is a class about all kinds of genres and all kinds of stories. We've gone on this Roald Dahl kick recently, so we're kind of burning through his books. And they're so, they're so wonderful. They're such good books. And so I don't know if people, if you or people listening are familiar with this book, Matilda, but it's this horrible principal in it, Miss Trunchbull, and she like literally will pick kids up and throw them and twirl them with them around by their hair and locks them in this miserable dungeon called the Chokey. And my children are very interested in her as a character, this horrible, nasty principal. And I can tell just by the looks in their faces and the questions they ask me about her and, and their interest in revisiting these moments in the plot where she is at her worst, where she's the most despicable. It's not only escapism that they like about these stories. You're right. They, it's a way for them to learn how the world works. Mm -hmm. You know, like... Okay, they know that no person, no no school principal would be this bad, but they can see because this is kind of the caricature of a of a horrible school principal. They're learning. Oh, I might find teachers in school that are kind of nasty. This th this could happen to me in the world. So what do we do? What does Matilda do when she encounters a horrible teacher? So we we learn stories are kind of yeah escapes on one hand. But they're kind of caricatures on another, or maybe that's a flawed metaphor in some ways. They are um, practice runs for life. You know, you know, we get to run through the plot in our imagination and ask ourselves, okay, what would I do? What would be the best thing to do? We get the benefit of, of that character's hindsight and life experience without having yeah. to face his or her obstacles. Yeah. I don't know how to transition from, that was a great little, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to call it a tangent because it was wonderful. It's better than a tangent. Wonderful, unexpected adventure that we went on. That's why I'm happy to have these as dialogues, not just monologues. How, how can we transition back to Heaney, though? Should we talk about, well, let's go to one of my favorite poems now. We, we can take turns going back and forth. Yeah. My favorite and your favorite. I really love this poem, The Skylight. Mm -hmm. So if you have a hard copy of the book, it's on page 109. And you can just find it if you have an electronic copy. It's called The Skylight. It's, also, it, you, it's in uh, Glanmore Revisited. Uh, yes. It's from a larger section. I actually have that one highlighted because I like that one as well. <laughs> oh, great. Good. So it'll be a favorite of both of ours. So I'll read it. And first, I'd love to hear why you highlighted it. What? Just, mm -hmm. you know, I'd just love to know what stood out to you about this. And then, you know, I'll, I'll share my favorite bits. And then I want to use it uh, as a specific example of a general principle, which is we can start talking about form. This is a sonnet. Why would mm -hmm. somebody write a sonnet? What is it that sonnets do? How does one go about thinking about writing a sonnet? Yeah, so here's the skylight. You were the one for skylights. I opposed cutting into the seasoned tongue and groove of pitch pine. I liked it low and closed, its claustrophobic nest up in the roof effect. I liked the snuff dry feeling, the perfect trunk lid fit of the old ceiling. Under there, it was all hutch and hatch. 
the blue slates kept the heat like midnight thatch. But when the slates came off, extravagant sky entered and held surprise wide open. For days I felt like an inhabitant of that house where the man sick of the palsy was lowered through the roof, had his sins forgiven, was healed, took up his bed, and walked away. So, yeah, what are your favorite bits? Let's just, you know, ooh and ah over this poem for a minute. When I started reading it, I didn't have any, I didn't have any idea that it was going to lead into that, the story of Christ doing the man with the palsy, but it just, it starts out so wonderfully where it talks about the, like, contrast, like you were talking about before, it contrasts the openness and the, of the sky, something that God created and allowing um, stars and, and this healings to take place versus the closed, closed mm. claustrophobic effect, I think it says, of the, the roof and the, the pines that, that keep us separated from, from the healing that Christ offers. Mm. So it's a little bit religious in my mind, but, but I, I enjoy the, that contrast that it brings forth between Christ and his openness and willingness to accept this versus our own closed offness. I totally love that. It gets away with being an allegory, a kind of spiritual allegory, while sticking to the concrete room. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a really a real big strength of this poem, that it's it's more or less just about a room. Yeah, he does go on to talk about this biblical event, but we're more or less in the room for the whole time. He, he doesn't start this long spiritual discourse, mm-hmm. which we might kind of tune out of, because like, oh, this like, gets slightly boring. He grounds us in the physical sensations of that room. And only then, once we're fully grounded, does he let himself make this kind of very subtle spiritual comparison? Yeah, speaking of contrast, I mean, I think you're right to say that there's this openness of Christ's openness to accept us. Yeah, and forgive us of our sins no matter who we are, um, no respecter of persons. Uh, and we these, these barriers between him and us are more or less self-imposed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They're ours to tear down whenever we want. But there is, so there's that too, but there is something also wonderfully contrasting. If you, if you, if you look at it, not yet in a spiritual realm and just in a physical realm, contrast is so good. It's kind of the unexpected and surprising theme of the day here. There is something wonderful about coziness. Yeah. Or being like Mm -hmm. in a tight little nook. That's not, I mean, that has a physical appeal to it, certainly. Yeah. And it's like an opposite appeal to openness but here in this poem, in this tiny little box, Heaney gets to celebrate both. You know, so I think that's one thing sonnets are really good at. I mean, poetry in general is really good at mm-hmm. celebrating opposites. Whitman, you know, Walt Whitman, one of my favorite poets. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. <laughs> you know, you could add this to your list of how to write poetry. Embrace opposites. Embrace yeah. paradox. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's really true. <laughs> Do you have any favorite lines or words or images in this poem? The just the way he describes the roof, where he get where he like you were saying, where he says, "I like the snuff dry feeling, the perfect trunk lid fit on of the old feeling. Under there, it was all hutch and hatch. The blue slates keep the heat like midnight thatch." Yeah. It's just it's just such a good image that it paints in my mind of this this warm, um, comfortable place. And at first. I'm kind of inclined to, yeah, that sounds a lot better than a skylight because that might be freezing or <laughs> it lets the weather in or anything like that. And then it just transitions to completely something I wasn't expecting at all. Love it. 
it, it, one of your classmates, I just read this yesterday, so it's, it's on my mind, but one of your classmates for his writing assignment wrote this memory, this childhood memory of he and his siblings, there used to be this warm spot. I mean, it, it, it struck me because it's a familiar thing. There used to be this warm spot in his house. This vent would push warm air out. And he had he and his siblings would kind of make these impromptu tents around this. They'd bring the blankets around and put the blankets around this vent. And they'd all cram in under this blanket so it would get really tight and really warm in there. And they would fight over it. It was this like wonderful, like almost drug that they became addicted to. And yeah, it can become this wonderful, I love this hutch and hatch feeling. The blue slates kept the heat, like midnight thatch, we all these heavy stresses. Blue slates kept the heat. The snuff dry feeling nest up in the roof effect. The la- even the language mm-hmm. of this first section is very dense mm-hmm. and tight. Do you know what I mean? And there's yeah. lots of internal rhyming and there's lots of stresses, lots of repeated sounds. That's one thing I think I really liked about um, reading poetry as opposed to reading uh, just like a story. It, we get the feelings that the author is trying to convey with the poem, but we also kind of get a, a little bit of a glimpse about his feelings about the feelings, how he feels like the, the meta feelings surrounding the poem. And yeah. it's just kind of inception. Yeah, no, that's that's so great. There are layers of inception-like layers of that's so true. Um, yeah, I had never really put it to myself in that way before, but you're so right. A, a, a pro story. I mean, this is all on a spectrum, of course. So, I wouldn't want to put. I wouldn't want to categorize these in discrete closed boxes. Yeah. That's why in this class, I don't really announce now the fiction unit is over. We're mm-hmm. never learning fiction lessons again because. Poetry can teach us how to write fiction and vice versa. So this is all on a spectrum, of course. But there are many, many stories, many, many great and famous stories whose primary pleasure and purpose and goal is plot. Mm -hmm. And language becomes secondary. It's kind of like a window. This is the metaphor that I've... I mean, this this is wonderfully serendipitous. Poem, The Skylight, has inspired this, this, this metaphor. Think about a window. What is a window? It is a clear pane of glass the purpose of which is to let you see outside. So on one end of the spectrum, there are plots, there are pieces of writing whose primary purpose is plot. And the language for those stories, and I'm not dispraising these stories, some of these stories are very, very excellent, but the language of these stories is as transparent as possible because the author wants you to see the plot. They want you to see what's outside past the window. Yeah. What's going to happen. What's going to happen. So the language doesn't get in the way. The author is not calling attention to the language. The language is seen through and kind of unseen in a way. You don't even know that you're looking through a pane of glass. On the other end of the spectrum, you could get poetry like this in which, yeah, he is telling you something that's past the pane of glass, but there are these inception-like layers where he's saying, yeah, look past the pane of glass at this thing that I'm telling you. But also if you notice, look at the pane of glass, look at the language, Mm -hmm. look at the window. It's wonderfully tinted. There's this crack down the window that I think is kind of beautiful. There's a bee wing that's stuck to the window, you know, or there's like this yellow pollen that's collected on the bottom of the window. So poetry, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's this kind of meta pleasure of poetry where you get the content of the poem, but you also get the form of the poem. Mm -hmm. You get what's outside in your yard past the window, but you also get the pleasures of savoring this pane of glass and all the various colors and cracks and contours and bumps. 
it, and, in, oh, sorry. It, no, please. it reminds me of the lesson that we just had with TAs where they showed the picture of the pipe and they said, this is, with the caption that says, this is not a pipe. Obviously, when I saw that, I didn't speak French and never seen it before. I was like, that's a pipe. <laughs> but if you think of it as a painting of a pipe or a picture of a pipe, you can look at the painting itself and look at the way that the artist has portrayed it and the, the styles that he's used to display it. And so poetry kind of does that for literature. Wonderful. That's so excellent. Yep. Um, that's exactly right. I couldn't say it better, so I won't try. We've already started talking about form. Uh, I wanted to talk about form. We've already started. We've already started talking about it. By for, I mean form, form and poetry. So one of my kind of meta questions that I wanted to, yeah, kind of pick your brain on is, what are some of the ways that poetry is shaped differently than prose? Of course, you know, for example, it's in lines, but again, partly what we've said already, poetry formally calls more attention to it, the language than prose often does very much like now I am just going to badly repeat what you just said, very much like many modernist paintings will call attention to the medium of paint. Mm-hmm. I mean, Van Gogh isn't only asking you to picture a starry night. He's asking you to picture, he's asking you to look at this, like the inch thick swirls of paint. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's form. He wants you to look at the, the brush strokes. So that's form. So a poet is going to call attention to the sounds of language in a way that a prose writer doesn't. And that's all formal. A poet wants you to notice vowels and consonants and stresses and unstresses and internal rhymes and assonance and slant rhymes. Mm-hmm. And that's all paint. That's all texture. You know, that's all form. Um, do you have any else, anything else to say about the ways in which poetry is shaped differently than prose and how those shapes change our experience of reading poetry? Yeah, I I really like that we've done this comparison between artists and poets because a definition that I've heard of a poem is words that are formed in a specific way. It it didn't have any indication that it was like has to rhyme, has to do this. It doesn't have any requirements. And it's kind of like a painting. It doesn't have to do anything. It just is what it is. Right. And so it, it reminded me a lot of the third poem from Clarence's where he's talking about his mom. This is another one I wanted to go to. So let's go to it. (laughs) Excellent. Very good. If you have the book, it's on page 97. Sorry, Brady, keep talking. Um, But when I I did my um, first writing workshop on on this, trying to replicate it to make a sonnet. And I've I've written sonnets before, but the way that I learned to write a sonnet was I Googled how to write a sonnet. And it came up with the formula of 14 lines, iambic pentameter and then 10 syllables per line. And so when I was reading this, I knew it was a sonnet. I could tell that he was writing a sonnet, but it doesn't fit that exact formula. And mm. I was bothered by that because I was like, I don't know how to turn this into something else. I don't know if he wants me to write it like a traditional sonnet or if he wants me to copy what he's done. Right. But it, I, I realized as I was going through that it's, I'm looking at it far too um, concretely, that it, it's much more... Um, artistic and just whatever is open for interpretation and the flow of it more than meeting these requirements of, of what a poem should be. It's, it's just what a poem is. Very good. So I want to highlight a couple things you said, and then we'll read the poem and then we'll use examples in the poem yet to corroborate your point. So you can Google 
and people should, you know, if they, because one of the potential assignments for this class is to try to write a sonnet. So all you'd have to do is Google forms of sonnet and you'll learn that sonnets are 14 lines in iambic pentameter. And there are a couple, you know, two or three variations of rhyme schemes that you can choose from. And they also have a turn, a turn that comes after line eight between line eight and line nine. This is probably worth, this isn't exactly where you were going. And I don't want to lose track of your point because it's very important. But I do want to talk about the turn a little bit. A turn is important in a sonnet. And I think a version of a turn is important in every poem. A turn just means that the thought, what are sonnets especially good at? Well, I think that a sonnet is especially good at encapsulating a process of thought. So thought A becomes thought not A. Yeah. Maybe thought B, but it doesn't even have to transform into a wholly new thought. You know, it can just be thought A becomes variation of thought A. Mm -hmm. So many famous love poems are sonnets and they'll say, you know, like like the octave, the first eight lines of a sonnet will say, I love you. And then the, the turn will be, in fact, I love you too much. So it's not like an entirely new thought, but it's just added an, a, a twist, a turn. Hence, yeah. hence the term turn. A turn is very important because it, the process of thinking is something that poetry is especially good at encapsulating. And it also is just makes for a more dynamic experience. Readers love change and evolution and difference. So the poem has to kind of gently or drastically find a way to swerve. Before I get to clearances, we saw this in Skylight, you know. I used to be the kind of person that thought that the best thing was this tightness, this coziness. All yeah. I wanted out of life was a great warm nook. And then the turn happens and that's on it exactly where it should happen, right at line nine. But, you know, he even says, but, right? When we took the ceiling off or something, how does he phrase it? I probably won't be able to find it again. But when the slates came off, extravagant sky entered and held surprise wide open. So, but then this new thing happened and I had a total change of perspective. If you want to write a sonnet, try to encapsulate that kind of evolution of thinking. Okay, now back to your point, which is very important. Yeah, you can Google the form of a sonnet and it will tell you iambic pentameter. And you can Google this term, iambic pentameter, and, and you can learn what this means. You, you know, you already do, and most people listening probably already do. But it's just as you say, Brady, don't get too strict with anything in these forms. Don't get too strict with your iambic pentameter. Don't even get too strict with your rhymes. There's nothing worse than strict, strict, strict iambic pentameter because yeah. it begins to sound like a metronome. Yeah. It gets to sound too predictable and too regular. And I think that there's, there's instances where that can, that can be good, but I don't think it should be every single time. I, I think that there should be, it should be the, the image that you're trying to convey. It should be artistic. It shouldn't be like a mathematical problem. No, that's exactly right. Like, and, and I mean, it's so tricky. Writing is so hard. I keep saying this, you know, on various recordings. It's so hard because it's not a mathematical formula. It's not a recipe for cookies. Mm -hmm. Every poem will call for something different. And what's different, and these decisions can be made through intuition or trial and error or experimentation. They're not necessarily always made cerebrally. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, if you look, sorry, we still haven't gotten to the clearances poem, but just to keep one foot in this skylight poem, which I love so much, I've said that the first eight lines do a great job mimicking the denseness and tightness of the room mm -hmm. in the way that the language is tense and, and, and tight. Blue slates kept the heat, all these stresses, trunk lid fit, hutch and hatch, all these internal rhymes, nest up in the roof effect, snuff dry feeling. We can even hear the pho and all these 
kind of abrasive, close, frictiony mm-hmm. sounds. I'm sure that that is deliberate. I'm sure that Heaney is trying in some way to pack in all of these dense sonic effects into that octave. But if we go to clearances, I bet we'll find instances where he's varying the prescriptive meter. Yeah. Just to vary it. Just mm-hmm. because it he, he knows it shouldn't get monotonous, you know? So it doesn't always have to mimic the content. It can just vary for the sake of variation. Yeah. So should we read it? Uh, sure. Here we go. <clears throat> so this is a poem about his mother. It's for, this whole sequence of sonnets, clearances, is kind of an extended elegy for his mom. And this is the third poem in it. When all the others were away at mass, I was all hers as we peeled potatoes. They broke the silence, let fall one by one, like solder weeping off the soldering iron. Cold comforts set between us, things to share gleaming in a bucket of clean water, and again let fall. Little pleasant splashes from each other's work would bring us to our senses. So while the parish priest at her bedside went hammer and tongs at the prayers for the dying, and some were responding and some crying, I remembered her head bent towards my head, her breath in mine, our fluent dipping knives, never closer the whole rest of our lives. Let's just, you know, spend a minute enthusing over our, the best moments of this. What are, what are the best moments of this, do you think? I love to look at it as a whole because it just so flows so well. It's so image-oriented. I, I can just feel myself sitting there peeling potatoes and then being transported all of a sudden to her bedside with, with the priest. That, that first part, again, contrast, it just contrasts so well, this happy moment, then all of a sudden uh, she's with, she's on her deathbed. And it's, right. it's just so beautiful to think about and flows really, really well. Excellent. So he manages to make the, these two disparate seams feel like they're coherent and that they belong together. Mm-hmm. Incredibly quiet and peaceful moment, happiness, and then suddenly she's dying. But we don't feel like there's any whiplash. I don't have an answer to this question. Why isn't there whiplash? Why don't we bristle when suddenly he zooms us to her deathbed? Why isn't your reaction, wait a minute, this is this is happening too fast? I, I think in a moment of crisis like that, it would feel pretty natural to reflect on the best things that have happened in life and the best okay. things that have happened with those, with those people. And so something small like peeling potatoes it's probably something that he did all the time. It wasn't just one thing that he did that one time, but it's a, a moment where he bonded with his mom that, that made their relationship what it was. That's great. So we, 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 we all get the sense when we arrive at, at that ending that, oh yeah, this is. When he's sitting at her deathbed, of course he's going to be thinking of all those then insignificant moments that now take on this immense significance. So the thought of peeling, the memory of peeling potatoes is not at all alien to the mm-hmm. scene in the, in, in, in the moment of dying. It, but, um, it reminds me a lot of, if, you, if anyone's ever read or heard of Our Town, the very last um, act and scene is, is when she's looking back on her life and she's just watching her birthday. And yeah. she gets so sad because there's all this stuff going around and going on and it's so busy everybody's running around and, and she just wanted someone to pay attention to her. Yeah. And she didn't care what it was. She just wanted to be involved in, in their lives. She just wanted to be an aspect of it. And rather than I don't know, the milk that the mom was bringing in or anything like that, she just wanted to be 
the focus on on her day. She wanted to be the focus. That's great. That's a great comparison. I hope all people go out and read or that play or go see that play. But as you say, you made you made a great point a few minutes ago about how he kind of this 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 is a sonnet. There's no ifs ands or buts about it. It's it's not an experimental sonnet. It's a total sonnet. Checks all the boxes. The rhymes are a bit slanty. Mass rhymes with potatoes. Iron rhymes with one. Share uh-huh. rhymes with water. Splashes rhymes with senses. Ray, did you want to just, as a reader, like you're reading this, what is the effect? You said that when you read this, you were a little bit irked at first that he's breaking the rules yeah. a little bit. I mean, it's not as if he couldn't find perfect rhymes. I'm sure he's a good mm-hmm. enough poet to have found a word that rhymes perfectly with mass. So we, I might be asking you to read the mind of a, a dead stranger, you know, which is like a double remove from you. It's something you can't necessarily do. But why as a poet would you, might you choose slant rhymes instead of perfect rhymes? That's one question. A meta version of that question is why as a poet might you want to play fast and loose with the rules like this? I mean, Looking at it from from his perspective, I would want my poems to be my poems. I would want my style to be my style, rather than conforming to what I need to conform to. Or because then it, anyone can write a perfect rhyme, anyone can write a perfect sonnet, but only right. he can write the sonnet that he can write. And and yeah. it it brings out his own artistic abilities rather than focusing on being a printer and just printing off an exact copy of of what is expected. Excellent. I mean, a robot could, I'm sure you could go online, Google AI sonnet maker, I bet they exist, and you could get a robot to spit out a perfect sonnet for you. Yeah, but a perfect sonnet that checks all those rule boxes isn't what we want. You're absolutely right. We want a personality. Mm-hmm. We want a character. We want someone who has a particular voice and view of the world. And Seamus Heaney's is one, and you know Brady's, yours is another. So, and maybe yours involves as much slant rhyme maybe it involves a little bit more perfect rhyme but yeah that you there's a way to embed so then my my, my i wasn't planning on asking you this this is a, i'll admit kind of a hard question i'm not sure what i would say if it was asked to me then my question would be why write sonnets at all in the year 2020 or in the year whenever this was written i don't know 1980 what is it do you, do you have anything to say about the benefit of relying on formal traditional patterns or forms? I, I mean, I think that um, the sonnet, the form of a sonnet and the form of poems that have been prescribed, they exist for a reason because they sound good, but the the artistic ability comes from altering that. Like when you're yeah. painting something, you're painting usually from, I don't know, it's a landscape or something that you're looking at. It's not really just from your memory. And so poetry works kind of in a similar way in that, you you have this form and then you can alter that form as you go but i I think also the forms of poetry accomplish different things like sonnets are usually love poems and and things with lots of lots of meaning like that because they have that term they have the flowy rhyme pattern and the just the form of it in general brings out kind of those sentimental feelings rather than something that's just strict and concrete and and straightforward You've said two really important things there that need need to be emphasized. The first was that p- these forms are used for a reason. They were developed over long time spans and they are proven to be beautiful. You know, they sound good. Sonnets are really beautiful. Um, and we shouldn't be so arrogant that we dismiss them as old or not relevant to us in the year 2020. 
because many people over many generations learned by trial and error that this is a particularly, there's something inherent about this structure that is beautiful, you know? Humans will find words arranged in this way beautiful. So we let's be humble and admit that, you know, our precursors from hundreds of years ago made important discoveries in what is beautiful and what is not. Another important thing you said, so that's why, so that, that's one answer to my very hard question, one great answer to my very hard question. They are proven to be beautiful, so let's not ignore those potentials to make beauty. Another great thing, though, is that they each offer something a little bit different. A sonnet can't really do what a haiku can do. Mm-hmm. A sonnet, a free verse poem can't really do what a sonnet can do. There are other poetic forms. You can Google these, poems like Villanelle's or Sestina's, which we don't have time to talk about in this course. But if you go on to take you know, English 319, writing poetry, spend a whole semester just on poetry, and you'll learn more about various poetic forms like Villanelle's and Sestina's. Villanelle's and Sestina's depend a lot on repetition, so repeated lines or repeated words. And these structures simply have different effects. They create different moods. They have totally different tones, and they're more suited to different subject matter. As you and I have been saying, there's no, I don't think it's an accident that love poetry, that love, the emotion of love, and the form of the sonnet found each other. You know, they were they were yeah. kind of soulmates <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a way, because love you know, it's such a contradictory and paradoxical and violent. It's full of turns and twists. I mean, that's just one of many reasons po- possibly why sonnets and love go together. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to tweet, achieve other effects, try different, try different forms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Any other comment or poem that you desperately wanted to talk about or question? No, I mean, I learned a lot just just from this. So it was, I think it was awesome. I think it's great. And so did I. I mean, this is why I've said this before in these podcasts, but dialogues are so much better. Everybody benefits, you know, especially me, I'm sure. So thank you very much. Thanks for coming so prepared. Thanks for these great insights. Awesome. Yep. Have a good day and a safe trip. You too. Bye. Bye. So I know this came up in the previous podcast about Seamus Heaney, but I kind of wanted to make it semi-official right now because I think it's an extremely good idea and a good technique and a good way to practice. The writing prompt for today is to try to write several lines of poetry. These lines do not need to be connected in any way. They can be standalone lines. They can be half sentences. It doesn't really matter. Simply images. Try to write several of them in which the sound mirrors the sense. In other words, Try to embody in the sounds of the line what is happening in the meaning of the words. So the narrow version of this is automatopoeia, but what we're doing here is much grander and much bigger and can exist for whole lines and whole sentences and whole stanzas. Examples of this that I give you in the syllabus are Coleridge's line, the frost performs its secret ministry, and Keats's line, beaded bubbles winking at the brim. So you hear vowel sounds and consonant sounds that are meant to recreate in some small way Remember that language can't fully ever do this totally, so don't take it to a far extreme, but just try to encode in some small way in the sounds of the language, the image or the event or the action that's taking place in the line itself. Seamus Heaney does a great job of this in his poem Digging and in many of his other poems. And he writes things like the cold smell of potato mold, the squelch and slap of soggy peat, the curt cuts of an edge example to kind of give us the sounds of somebody digging with a shovel into wet ground.
So pick an image or event or situation and try this for yourself. Try not only to describe that event, but to embody the sounds of that event into the words and letters of the poem. Continuing on our Irish theme, the poem of the day is by another of my favorite Irish poets, and her name, I think, is pronounced, with apologies to all of Ireland, Elaine Nihulahain. And this poem is called Swineherd. Swineherd. When all this is over, said the swineherd, I mean to retire, where nobody will have heard about my special skills, and conversation is mainly about the weather. I intend to learn how to make coffee, at least as well as the Portuguese lay sister in the kitchen, and polish the brass fenders every night. I want to lie awake at night, listening to cream crawling to the top of the jug, and the water lying soft in the cistern. I want to see an orchard where the trees grow in straight lines and the yellow fox finds shelter between the navy blue trunks, where it gets dark early in summer and the apple blossom is allowed to wither on the bough. That's it for today. The next recording will be between me and a couple of you about the poetry of Emily Dickinson. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, keep enjoying the readings, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. (laughs) 